0: Please take your Bibles and open them to Matthew chapter 3, and if you don't have a Bible with you, you can grab the one in the pew rack in front of you. Page 808 is where you will find Matthew chapter 3. Without giving you uh, too long of an introduction to this, we we do need to review a little bit of where we have come thus far in the Gospel of Matthew. Remember, both Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wrote their Gospels independently and for a reason— Uh, This is a body of writing, this is a piece of literature, Uh, this was written by a human author, superintended by one Holy Spirit. The same Spirit ultimately authored all of the books of the Bible, which is why they fit together as one complete unit, but it pleased him to utilize human authors as well, and they each brought their own particular purpose to the book they were writing Back in the beginning of Matthew, it starts off with a genealogy of Christ Jesus in order to prove to you that he is the son of David. He is the son of David. He is entitled to the throne, not only through the adoptive family of his earthly father, Joseph, who is not his biological father, but also through his biological mother, Mary. Then, Matthew went on to describe the nature of the miraculous virgin conception that brought him into the world. In chapter 2, we see that there were magicians from the east, probably from Assyria, who came to Jerusalem, and this was a major event. Due to the pagan rituals that they had devised over the years, something had occurred that would lead them to believe that the king of the Jews had been born. Not a king that was named a king by the emperor, but a true king of the Jews, born king of the Jews. And they went to the place where the king of the Jews would be, and that is Jerusalem. When they get there, they find another man who is claiming to be the king of the Jews, and that is Herod, and he sends those men in to find that child which his own religious advisors tell him would be born in Bethlehem. Unfortunately, by this point, many years have passed and the child is no longer in Bethlehem. The child is, in fact, in Nazareth, and these magi find him and worship him. When Herod realizes what has happened and that they have not, in fact, delivered up the child to be killed, he goes into a rage and he sends his men into this city to destroy, to murder all of the infant boys under the age of two. After Herod's death, God reveals to Joseph that he is to return back to the place where he was, but instead of going to Nazareth, instead of going to the place which was now under the rule of one of Herod's wicked sons, he instead retreats in to another place, namely, Nazareth, the district of Galilee, in order that he would be called a Nazarene. Well, there's about 30 years of silence at that point, as you know, and last week we saw that the story picks up again where Matthew is saying that now in those days, some 30 years later, after absolutely no indication of what was going on in the life of Jesus between then and now, it says that another man came, and it's a very important word. It means to appear, to come on the scene. Uh, This man came, just like the Magi came, and this man came and he was preaching in the wilderness of Judea. He was a preacher, a herald, a proclaimer. He was not an expositor of scripture. Rather, he was a herald. He was somebody who said that the scriptures are being fulfilled that said that the one would come that we would call Messiah, and he wants you to know that he's here. John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer, is that man. Just to be clear, John the Baptist was not a Baptist, as in John the Baptist, not John the Presbyterian, or John the Methodist. Uh, In fact, there were no Baptists until just a few hundred years ago. By Baptist, what we're talking about here is not a denomination. By Baptist, we mean a baptizer. And that is what he was doing. That was the nature of his ministry. It was a way for people to indicate that they had come to the realization that their own self righteousness, as accrued to them through the religious system of Judaism, was not sufficient to save them, it was not sufficient merit. And so they were coming out to John to acknowledge that in the anticipation that there would very soon come this Messiah who would be able to thus make all things right. And they were acknowledging their separation from the existing religious structure and their anticipation of the promised Messiah who would come. John himself is dressed like one of the ancient prophets in camel's hair and a leather belt, and he would eat locusts and wild honey because he was living in the wilderness, a desolate area. This was not wilderness uh, like where you would go today to camp. I mean, this is wilderness where people go to die. There was nothing out there. And so the insects that he ate, the honey that he ate, this is literally what he could scavenge from the ground. And he dressed like a prophet because he wanted everybody to realize that he was the prophet. There was nobody else. In fact, it had been 400 years of silence on God's part. He had sent no prophets. In fact, if you'll notice at the end of what you call the Old Testament in your Bible, you'll see that it ends with these minor prophets. doesn't mean they were lesser. It just means they wrote shorter books. But they were the last of the prophets to speak for God. And then when they go silent, so does God, and there is nothing for 400 years until this man, John the Baptist, comes on the scene, and he doesn't want there to be any mistake whatsoever about it. He was an Old Testament prophet in the spirit of Elijah. He was the one who came as the fulfillment of the promise that this man would come back again. He fulfills the promises of Isaiah, speaks in the words of Elijah, dresses like one of these prophets, and he is declaring that the Messiah is about to be revealed. He's about to come on the scene. And thus begins a section that is going to take us from chapter 3 and verse 1 all the way to chapter 4 in verse 17. It's not a typo in your bulletin, and Frank did not read the wrong portion of Scripture. This was a decision made after all of that was printed, but the more I looked at it, the more I realized that you simply can't separate this section. This is one unit. Matthew has an intention Matthew is writing this with a deliberate intention to show us what it means for Christ to have come to set himself up as he who would fulfill all righteousness and carry on the preaching of John the Baptist to repent, not for the kingdom of God is near, but repent for the kingdom of God has come. It begins with repent and it ends with repent. It begins with the one who baptizes and it ends with one who calls others to a ministry of baptism. It is one unit, so we're gonna look at it as one over the next two weeks. We'll take some time doing that. We won't cover it all today. But as we carried on, we saw this, that in verse 11, after his fiery preaching about the fact that he is putting to death this entire religious system, cutting it up by the roots, throwing it into the fire. It is John who says, verse 11 of chapter 3, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. If there was a television program that was created today where Jesus was the star of the show... And I'm sure that there probably is one right now, or I'm probably sure there has been, because he's a fascination to people and always has been. Unfortunately, by depicting him on television, you'd be violating the second commandment, and so you should never watch such a thing. But if there were, and there were a series in this show, episodes, then the episode we're looking at today would have at the bottom of the caption something about last time on Matthew, or last week And it would look back to this moment, and there would be a cutaway, and you would see a little clip from last week's episode where John the Baptist is preaching this, and he is saying that this one will come, and he will come, and he will baptize in the Spirit and in fire. I mean, that's really what echoes throughout this entire section. And I believe that he is reaching back again into the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the prophets, and he is quoting from Joel chapter 2, and you don't have to turn there, but just listen how familiar this is. Joel chapter 2, verse 28 and following says, And it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth. Blood and fire and columns of smoke. Interpreters are divided as to whether or not the combination of those two things in that prophecy... Suggest the coming of the Spirit and judgment, or the coming of the Spirit and a fire that purifies. Is the fire a fire of judgment or a fire of purification? I don't think we can say with absolute certainty, but what we do know is that the imagery of fire in the New Testament carried on both of those ideas. A little bit later in John's message, you'll notice here at Verse 12, the winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor, gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. That reference to fire is clearly a fire of judgment. No believer wants to go through unquenchable fire. But the fire here attached to the Spirit, there's good evidence to suggest that this could very well be this fire of cleansing. The Holy Spirit will be poured out. Well, that's a very important section to understand and to have as the backdrop against what we'll study this morning. So please join me now again in Matthew chapter 3, and we'll pick it up in verse 13. From Matthew chapter 3, verse 13, all the way to chapter 4, verse 17, we are going to see the righteousness of Christ. The righteousness of Christ. And the main argument here is that Matthew chooses... I'm going to say now three events in the life of Jesus Christ to reveal his act of obedience to the law and his absolute trust in the Father. That's the overarching main point. That's the big idea Matthew wants to get through to you. And he's going to do that by revealing the testimony of righteousness in chapter 3, 13 to 17. The test of righteousness in chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. And we'll call it the time for righteousness because you have to have an alliteration, Right? The testimony, the test, and we'll just call it for now, the time for righteousness. And that will be chapter 4, 12 through 18. So this, 12 through 17, I should say. So, the testimony, the test, the time. We'll just take a look at the first one probably today. Testimony of righteousness. Beginning in verse 13, we read, Then Jesus came. And again, I must stop you there and remind you that the word came is not merely a word to describe what was going on there in that situation. It was a particular term used by Matthew to say that somebody has arrived. Somebody has come on the scene. It's the moment where the spotlight goes across the stage and over to the corner and the theme music begins, and in anticipation of it, you look over and out they come. Or the curtain is divided. And the host arrives. This is the idea by Cain. Something major is going on right now in the drama of the story. Jesus came, and he came from Galilee, all the way from the obscure place where he had been all these decades, where nothing about him is known. He arrives now from that place of obscurity, and he goes to the Jordan to John. And he came there with a direct purpose. In the original language, it is crystal clear that he is there with a purpose. And the purpose, please notice it, is to be baptized by him. Uh, Not to be glib, but Jesus was not just casually cruising through the Jordan area. He was not just taking a little walk in the wilderness. He wasn't just out there on some sort of personal mindfulness retreat and bumped into John. He went out there all the way from Galilee with an intent purpose. He set his eye on going out there in order that he would accomplish something. From the very moment he began to the moment it was accomplished, he had one goal and one goal only, and that was to be baptized by John the Baptist. It didn't dawn on him when he was there that maybe I should do this as well. He already knew what he was going to do, so please remember that. There was nothing casual about this. There was nothing incidental about it. There was nothing accidental about it. He meant to go. In the same way that when he sets his eye on the cross and he goes and no one is going to stop him, so too he set his mind on baptism and he goes and no one is going to stop him. Not even the Baptist. We're going to see in a moment exactly what that confrontation meant. Verse 14, John the baptizer would have prevented him. He would have. (laughs) He would have. Now again, we're going to use our sanctified imaginations here for a moment, but John the Baptist, who knew Jesus because they were only six months apart, likely grew up in family gatherings together, had some sort of awareness of each other, but there is no indication that John the Baptist saw him from a distance or really understood who he was until this moment when Jesus arrives. And he obviously remembers him, knows him, has had a relationship with him, and among the many who were coming to John to be baptized, likely coming down the bank into the Jordan River, to remember, confess their sins and confess their failure to accomplish any self-righteousness and to do something that no Jew would ever do, which is get baptized, because that's what Gentiles did to become Jews. Once you're a Jew or you're born a Jew, you don't need to do this. But they were saying that where humility is so strong, their desire for repentance is so great, that they were willing to basically go all the way back to the beginning and be baptized as if they weren't even Jews by birth. And not to get too distracted from this, but isn't it interesting that it's precisely the conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus when he says, well, what do you mean? I've got to go back and get born again. See, Jesus says you don't just make yourself better. you got to start all the way back again from the beginning, from birth. That's what it means to be born again, born from above. Well, here, people are coming down to John, and all of a sudden... Standing before him is Jesus, his cousin, the Jesus that he knew about and was proclaiming, the Jesus that the Holy Spirit had revealed to John, it says, from his mother's womb. Without going down a trail of pneumatology and the study of that theological category in too much detail, just bear this in mind, okay? I want to be clear about this. This is another little tangent, but I think it's helpful. The Holy Spirit, we are told, filled John the Baptist from the womb. Now, John the Baptist was conceived in a normal but miraculous way. John the Baptist was also a miracle child given to his parents who were not able to have children naturally. God miraculously allowed his natural human parents, mother and father, to conceive him in the normal way. But he was still a miracle child. Does that make sense? So it was a miracle, but it says from his conception. So even in the womb, in fact, when Mary, the mother of Jesus, comes to Elizabeth, her cousin, when she reveals herself and she says that there is this child in her from the Holy Spirit, it says that inside Elizabeth the child leapt. Now that doesn't mean that the child was saved from the womb. Remember, this is an old covenant believer. And what it means is that the Holy Spirit came upon that child the way the Holy Spirit came upon Saul, but was then later taken. The way the Holy Spirit, frankly, came upon Balaam's donkey. The Holy Spirit could come upon and empower without saving and indwelling. That's a new covenant reality. Now, I do believe that John the Baptist believed. John the Baptist was, in fact, a follower of Christ. John the Baptist was regenerated. But this is not an argument for saying he was somehow regenerated from birth. But John the Baptist, having this spirit anointing, knowing that this was the Messiah, confronts him and does so on just grounds. Look at what he says. He would said, I'm going to prevent you. He says, and this is all emphatic, by the way, in the original. Uh, if, if you are an underliner, you should underline the pronouns. I, underlined, need to be baptized by you, underlined, And do you, underlined, come to me, underlined? I mean, it's just like meant to be really, really emphatic. He says, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? He's asking the question, and he is absolutely justified in asking the question. John knows why Jesus is there, and Jesus knows that John knows that Jesus knows why he's there. This is not a conversation that is there to help inform an ignorant person. This is a conversation that begins with confrontation because the person that has arrived is fully aware of what they're about to do and what they are asking. And when Jesus asks John, the baptizer, to baptize him, it puts John back on his heels and says, you know better than to ask that of me. I need to be baptized by you. Listen very carefully now to this because I do believe it's where many of us get off track, and for years it confused me. I was under the impression for a long time that what John was saying was that John needed to be baptized by Jesus because John couldn't baptize himself and because John needed to show the same kind of repentance that the others were, and that he needed to receive that kind of baptism from Jesus. But what I come to see now, and it's the meaning of the entire narrative, is that Jesus comes with a very different baptism. Jesus is going to offer a entirely different baptism. It is not John's baptism. John's baptism was one kind. Jesus' baptism is an entirely different kind of baptism. John the Baptist didn't baptize you in the Spirit and fire. John the Baptist baptized you as a way of giving public declaration to your repentance, the confession of sin, the acknowledgement that you need a Savior, your willingness to look for the coming of the Messiah, Whereas Jesus came, and in his baptism, it would be an indication that you have placed your faith in him as someone who is regenerated and therefore able to repent of your sin and receive salvation. John the Baptist can't save you with his baptism. Mark it down. John the Baptist can't save you with his baptism. The reason why he said, he must increase and I must decrease, is not just because John was a humble guy. John was a humble guy. But it's not just because he was a humble guy. Let's give you an example. If a great preacher came here to this church and he was world-renowned and started attending our church and he said, I really think that I should be the pastor of this church, and you all agreed because it's just amazing, and at some point I just have to go, you know what, I must decrease, you must increase. Like, I, I pray for humility, you know what, you should be here, not me, you're the one. This happened to me in real life. I played football when I was in high school. Uh, There were two quarterbacks, myself and this other guy, and this other guy continued to grow and continued to improve and continued to be amazing, and uh, I very quickly found myself being demoted. He must increase, I must decrease. Now, to be fair, because I have to... um, Lest you get the wrong idea, this guy did go on to play in the NFL, okay? So, just, just, just to be clear. But sometimes there's a, I must decrease, you must increase, because you're just simply better than me. That's not exactly what's going on here. What John the Baptist is saying is, I must decrease. My baptism, what I'm doing here, this needs to fade away. This needs to go away. I, I, must, I must fade away. I must, I must disappear. Not because you're so much greater than me, but be, which he is, but because what I'm offering right now, it's irrelevant now that you're here. You see, that's what he's saying. I need to be baptized by you. I need to have what you're bringing because what I'm bringing is irrelevant now that you're here. I'm done. My job is done. I've heralded your arrival. My job is done. I need to fade away, decrease, disappear, go off the scene because my baptism isn't going to save. How do I know that? Providentially, as we've been working through the book of Acts in our Bible study, just Yesterday, I had the privilege of going through and recording Acts 19, and that's an, ex- an example of what happened, that some 20 years after the ascension of Jesus, 20 years after, there were still people, especially in the Greek-speaking part of the Roman world, who had been baptized by John the Baptist, but had never heard of Jesus. So they had gotten there early, gotten a baptism from John, something had happened, they move away, they go to a different country, they go to a different place. Twenty years later, Paul arrives and he says, have you been baptized by the Holy Spirit? And they say, we've never even heard of that. We were baptized by John. Here's the question, were those people regenerate? The answer is no. That God and His kindness had preserved them until they heard the true gospel, but when they believed and when they received the power of the Holy Spirit and they spoke in tongues and they prophesied, not because that's what happens every time you get saved, but because it showed that the fire of the gospel had sort of jumped the freeway and now it was in Gentile territory. But they were the ones who said, no, I only had this baptism of John, and by being baptized in the power of the Holy Spirit, by laying, hand, laying on of hands of Paul, it indicated that they were now converted, they were now believing in the Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who John was pointing to. That's why this confrontation is so relevant. So let's go back now with all that as sort of filling in. He very clearly says to Jesus, I need to be baptized by you because I am a sinner and what you're bringing is going to redeem. But, verse 15, Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Brothers and sisters, I can't think of a more important text for us right now than verse 15 of chapter 3. Let it be so now. The first words that Matthew decides to use to quote Jesus in his gospel are these words. Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. What is the reason? The reason is that one had to come to bear the iniquity of those who would one day put their faith in him. You see, somebody had to come to pay in full the uh, the punishment that was due for all who had sinned. We go back again to Isaiah chapter 53, and listen as I read, beginning in verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities." You see, one would come to make the unrighteous righteous, and the only way to make unrighteous people righteous is to pay their debt and to do their work. The only way to make an unrighteous person righteous or justified in the eyes of God, a word, by the way, that is used by Matthew more than any other gospel writer, I think seven times in Matthew and only three times across the other gospels, but some like 57 times by Paul, the only way for one to get justified and made righteous is for another to pay your debt and do your work. That's what Jesus came to do. And we know that because in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, we read this 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21 For our sake he made him. God made Christ to be sin who knew no sin so that, there's the purpose, in Him we might become the righteousness of God. In Him. Oh, if you understand in Him and in Christ, it'll change the way you read the New Testament. What does it mean to be in Him? That's one of my favorite two words when they're back to back. In Him, in Christ. We could spend hours and hours just talking about that. But notice what he says. That it was for our sake, because of what we had done, that he made him to be sin. He paid the price, even though he had no sin of his own, so that in him we might become the righteousness of Christ. He did our work. That is the only way that one can stand justified in the eyes of a holy, holy, holy God, as we sung about earlier. There will be much more of this as we review it in the coming weeks, but just for the sake of time, let me at least try to finish this section. Verse 16, and when Jesus Christ was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened. And I believe it says here in the text, to him. Likely only to him was there this breach in the heavens where, where he then sees once again, directly between heaven and earth, a connection between he and his Father. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove. It says, like a dove not a dove. And by the way, the Holy Spirit is not a dove. You don't need to have doves everywhere. Don't think that the Holy Spirit was symbolized by a dove. It was never symbolized by a dove. Enough with the doves, okay? No more doves. This is like a dove. In fact, you can translate it pigeon, if that really wants to mess up with your thinking. But it came down softly. Doves were symbolic of innocence and also weakness. It comes down and rests upon him, the Spirit of God upon him, anointing him, and it descends and rests on him. Catherine and I were just in Florence a couple of weeks ago, and there were so many amazing works of art. Something like 60% of the art great art in the world is in Italy, and about 30% of it is in Florence. I mean, it's absolutely amazing. But you go through and you look at all of this religious art, and, and so many of them had as the subject the baptism of Jesus, and, and they're all wrong. I mean, they're beautiful, but, but they would fail because they're absolutely not what says in the text The the, the dove didn't just hover over him and and, and sort of explode in some Shekinah glory, and then the Father is is up there like this huge muscular guy with a big white beard, and Jesus down there with John the Baptist like sprinkling something out of a seashell. That's not what happened. What happened is that he sees heaven open up. He sees the Spirit coming upon him. The Father's affirmation of the Son. This is a Trinitarian moment. In Latin, they call it the pactum salutis, the agreement before the foundation of the world that there would be within the triunity of the Spirit, within the simplicity of their will, one desired outcome, and that is that the Father sends the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit that he might call to himself those whom he had chosen before the foundation of the world. And this is on display, and Jesus sees it in his incarnational humanity. This is meant by Matthew to seal it in your mind that Christ, the Divine One, the very Son of God, anointed, as it were, by the Spirit and by the will of the Father in order to prepare for that ministry of righteousness and reconciliation that He would do. And it says here that not only were the heavens opened up, not only is this what He saw, but, verse 17, behold, a voice from heaven said, and again, I'm inclined to believe this was more audible to others because The Father says this, meaning an identification. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. By saying he is the Son, he does not say that he is now the Son or he became the Son or he is the Son in some inferior way, like he must submit to the Father because the Father is greater than the Son. There is no submission within the Trinity. There is no uh, subordination within the Trinity. What you have here is the indication that Son, in the ontological sense, you can write that word down, look it up later, it means in his being, in his essence, in his character. This is why they were so careful in the Athanasian Creed to make sure we understood what the Trinity really was. The Trinity is not steam ice water. The Trinity... Is so much more complex than that that all of our earthly illustrations fail. But the reality is this: from this text, that the Son and the Father are equal of the same essence. Homo usia is the word that was used. Homo, same, usia, essence. They are of the absolute same essence. That's what it means when he says he's my Son. It's a declaration of the divinity of Christ, I and mean, the only a divine Christ, a divine Messiah. Could come and live out all of his life in perfect, absolute righteousness and always please now and forever the Father. When it says, in whom I am well pleased, the grammar is there revealing that it's an ongoing pleasing, that I am, you could almost say, I am and always will be pleased with you. It's the relationship that he has. It's wonderful to look at your son, look at your daughter and say, I love you, and I'm so pleased by you, isn't it? I, I just love doing that. I only have one child in the room, and it would embarrass me if I brought him down. But imagine he's standing here with me, and, and, and to hug him. And now my boys, i all looking up at him, you know, and say, I love you. I'm so pleased by who you are. I just love you, and you give me so much joy and so much pleasure just to watch you live your life. Imagine what it is like when the Father says to the perfect incarnate, Holy Son, I take absolute infinite delight in everything that you do. Brothers and sisters, that's what it meant for him, back a few verses earlier, to fulfill all righteousness, verse 15. You see, he had to come and actively obey in every way that he might make a perfect representation in every way that Adam failed. The second Adam had to come to make up for everything the first Adam failed to do. And it is so critical for you to understand that he came to fulfill that righteousness to do the work for you. He didn't merely come and in his perfection welcome you in on his own intrinsic merit. Please bear with me. I know it's getting late. You're getting hungry. I, ju- I have to do this, and I have, to, I have to bring us to this point, okay? I know this is a little bit difficult. Very important that you understand this difference, so please bear with me. The righteousness that Christ has Because he is God, is a perfect, holy righteousness that he has because of who he is. He is perfect holiness. That is not the perfection and righteousness and holiness he gives to you. He doesn't make you a god. So what does he give you? The righteousness that is imputed to you is the active obedience and perfect law-keeping and righteousness that Christ fulfilled every single day of His life on this earth so that He not only can bear your sin and pay for it for you, but give you not his own intrinsic natural righteousness because of who he is, but the righteousness he earned, the righteousness he did, all the good works that he fulfilled, the perfect law keeping for you. And by the way, he was so righteous and so perfect that he even took his place as if he had sinned like you and me in order to go through that process as well. Brothers and sisters, Christ had no sin to confess before John the Baptist. Amen? Amen. Let's not even come close to misunderstanding that. There was no sin for Him to confess. But when He came, living out the action of a confessor, He was doing it on our behalf. He was living it out for us. You see, one had to come that would do that. Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 1 says this. Isaiah 42 and verse 1. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. From 2 to 4, it continues. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and all the coastlands wait for his law. Looking forward to this Messiah who would come. The one who would fulfill all righteousness. The one who would literally come down and allow himself to not only be imputed with the sins of others, but to live out their necessary acts of repentance, though he had no sin of his own to repent of. Isaiah chapter 53, beginning in verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall, he, shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered among the transgressors. He was counted like a transgressor. How was he numbered among them? He went and got in line to get baptized. That's how he numbered with them. What in the world? Can you imagine? You're standing in line to get baptized by John the Baptist, and behind you is Jesus. That's what it means to be, to be numbered among. Why? Because of anything he had done? No. No. But it, he is showing that he is living out every example of what it means to be the penitent heart that receives from God the forgiveness of sin. Yet he bore the sin of many, I'm in chapter 53, 12, and makes intercession for the transgressors. He stands in the gap. Brothers and sisters, this is the great testimony of righteousness. This is what it means for the perfect Son of God to come and to take on flesh in order that He might in that weak, temptable uh, flesh that can get sick live out perfectly everything that Adam failed to do so that a second Adam could come and could be the one who not only pays what is owed but accomplishes what is due there is so much more that we have to say about this in the coming weeks please return with anticipation to be ministered to and comforted by the righteousness of christ as he testifies to it as it is put to the test and as it passes and he says now is the time for all to live it out by the power of the Spirit. Our Father in heaven, we are so grateful. And as we turn our attention to the Lord's Supper now, and we ask that you would give us great grace as we receive the promise reflected in these elements. Oh God, impress upon the minds of every person here today. Maybe for the first time. Or maybe just now it'll go even deeper deeper into their soul that when the new covenant was revealed in Christ the blood covenant that we are all guilty of partaking in that it was done by your perfect will in order that sinners who are deserving only of wrath and judgment would have that sin imputed to Christ and the punishment paid by him and every good work demanded of us imputed to us because of what He did in order to fulfill all righteousness. Remind us, I pray, that in our pursuit of personal holiness and in lives that bring you joy, that we would be those who see that not as a way to earn favor and merit with you, but rather as a way to live out what you intended us to be, those who before the foundation of the world were chosen in order that by putting our faith and trust in Christ, that we would be those who were redeemed and able then, in the intervening time between here and being called to glory, to live out the good works as your workmanship, as you had ordained that we would do. Help us to, with great joy, live those out. In your name we pray. Amen.